0: many Latter-day Saints over the past 50 years. Although many have enjoyed listening to Brother Nibley's own voice, the relatively poor recordings have often prevented his audiences from fully understanding and appreciating his works. We have remedied this problem by having this set of Nibley's essays read by Lloyd Newell, whose exceptional voice talent preserves the dignity of Nibley's expression and maximizes listener comprehension and enjoyment. The title of this essay is on the sacred and the symbolic. It was published in the book, Temples of the Ancient World. The Terrible Questions. What are the terrible questions? When Clement, the earliest authentic Christian writer after the New Testament, was a student in Rome, he nearly went crazy trying to find the answers to the terrible questions. Not a professor in Rome could help him as he pestered them by asking, do I have a life after death? Won't I exist at all? Couldn't I have existed before I was born? Won't we remember anything after this life? Or is the whole vast stretch of time simply to be oblivion and silence, in which we would not only not be there, but there would be no memory of our ever having been? Such thoughts led naturally to others. When was the world made? What was there before it was made? Or was it always there? It seemed clear to me that if it was created, it would have to pass away, dissolve, and if it passed away, what then? Would it be a matter of total oblivion and silence, or something else that we can't even imagine? It was not until he met Peter at a general conference in Caesarea that Clement could get some straight answers, as Peter began telling him about the premortal existence and the council in heaven, telling of the fall and redemption, and other things related to the gospel plan. When Clement, thinking of his dead father and mother, asks, Will those be excluded from Christ's kingdom who died before his ministry? Peter answers, Now, Clement, you are pressing me to talk about some things that cannot be openly discussed, but I will tell you as much as I am allowed to. He then assures Clement that his parents are not in hell, although they never were baptized, and that ample provisions have been made for their salvation, which Clement may be qualified to learn of later. Plainly, the early Christians had something close to what we would call an endowment, that is, a confidential discipline which dealt head-on with those terrible questions. Has modern science put the questions to rest or come up with satisfying answers? Consider the conclusion of a recent book entitled Black Holes by an eminent nuclear physicist. We have come to the end of our story about the universe. It is full of violent actions and grim forebodings, of horrors unfolded and mysteries still to be explored. The natural reaction to such a tale is that each of us can continue to live our lives untouched by these immensities and by the catastrophes to come. The satisfaction gained from the simple round of life need be unaltered even when seen against this vast backdrop of the universe. We may live and die without raising up our eyes to the heavens, secure in the safety of our cotton wool globe. Yet that is false. We cannot divorce our lives from the basic problems of the universe. It is the answers, or lack of them, which determine our actions, even from day to day. For whatever we do, we must somehow come to terms with the infinite before we can act. One act has another for a goal, but the highest level goals are always there. The highest-level goals are based on the wish to survive and for loved ones to survive. This is the highest-level goal of all. The wish for survival in one form or another is absolutely essential for our continued existence. The conclusion, then, is that we, for all our modern sophistry, cannot escape the terrible questions. But survival in one form or another, leaving everything up in the air, is hardly a scientific solution. That carries us only as far as the cemetery at best, and C.P. Snow reflects pointedly on the plight of the greatest scientists of his generation. Does anyone really imagine that Bertrand Russell, G.H. Hardy, Rutherford, Blackett, and the rest were bemused by cheerfulness as they faced their own individual state? In the crowd, they were the leaders. They were worshipped. But by themselves, they believed with the same certainty that they believed in Rutherford's Adam, that they were going after this life into annihilation. Against this, they only had to offer the nature of scientific activity, its complete success on its own terms. But it is whistling in the dark when they are all alone. The word endowment is well chosen in both its forms, endowment and endowment, which Joseph Smith uses interchangeably. To endow is to bestow a gift on one, to furnish or enrich with something in the nature of a gift. It is to enrich, clothe, invest, furnish. The last named is nearer to endue, suggesting the Greek enduo, take upon oneself, clothe, to put on. The Latter-day Saints endowment is in the nature of endowment insurance, in which the policy provides for the payment of an endowment at the expiration of a fixed term of years, and only when the recipient has fulfilled certain stipulations. Such ideas were new to many of the saints. Be assured, brethren, said Brigham Young, there are but few, very few, of the elders of Israel who know the meaning of the word endowment. To know, they must experience, and to experience, a temple must be built. Let me give you the definition in brief. Your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you after you have departed this life to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels, being enabled to give them the key words, the signs and tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood, and gain your eternal exaltation in spite of earth and hell. We come into this world weak and frail mortals, as Charles C. Rich explained it, We have an agency given us with an opportunity of doing good and evil. We are invited to obey the gospel, which embraces principles that will endow the willing and obedient with exaltation and eternal life. It is that opportunity to direct our actions toward the eternities that makes this a glorious world, for it is here we are enabled to obtain our blessings and endowments. The endowment was not only necessary to the exaltation of the individual, but to the spreading of the gospel in its fullness, a spreading of light to the nations. Joseph Smith said, A man of God should be endowed with all wisdom, knowledge, and understanding to teach and lead people, and that not only in the church, but throughout the world. They were first to be endued in Kirtland, and then the elders would go forth, and each must stand for himself that individually and collectively the saints might have the satisfaction of seeing the blessings of the endowment rolling on and the kingdom increasing and spreading from sea to sea. In order to spread the light and knowledge effectively, God has gathered the people of God in any age of the world to build unto the Lord an house in which to receive the ordinances. This was purposed in the mind of God before the world was to prepare them for the ordinances and endowment, washings and anointings, administered in a house prepared for the purpose in every dispensation of the gospel. Something of the richness and scope of the endowment is indicated in Joseph Smith's record of the first time it was administered in its fullness on May 4, 1842. I spent the day instructing them in the principles and order of the priesthood, attending to washings, anointings, endowments, and the communication of keys pertaining to the Aaronic priesthood, and so on to the highest order of the Melchizedek priesthood, setting forth the order pertaining to the Ancient of Days, and all those plans and principles by which anyone is enabled to secure the fullness of those blessings which have been prepared for the church of the firstborn, and come up and abide in the presence of Elohim in the eternal worlds. In this council was instituted the ancient order of things, for the first time in these last days, things spiritual, and to be received only by the spiritually minded. Naturally, great knowledge can only be received by degrees. It is not all a single package. Abraham's endowment was greater than that which his descendants Aaron and Levi would be allowed, for Abraham's patriarchal power was the greatest yet experienced in the church. The prophet gave the nine brethren the endowment ordinances in their fullness for the first time on the above date. The endowment itself is eternal and essentially unchanging, and hence there is only one. God purposed that there should not be an eternal fullness until every dispensation should be fulfilled and gathered together in one and to the same fullness and eternal glory. Therefore he set the ordinances to be the same forever and ever, And set Adam to watch over them, to reveal them from heaven to man, or to send angels to reveal them. It is an ancient order of things restored for the first time in these last days, after the order of the covenant which God made with Enoch, it being after the order of the Son of God, which order came not by man, but of God. The gospel has always been the same Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He must have been baptized and ordained to the priesthood by the laying on of hands, etc. The mysteries of godliness are the ordinances of the temple, preparing us for life in the eternities, and the whole thing is endless, prepared from the foundations of the world. It is necessary in the ushering in of the dispensation of the fullness of times that a whole and complete and perfect union— and welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glories, be revealed from the days of Adam even to the present time. Whenever men can find out the will of God and find an administrator legally authorized by God, there is the kingdom of God. To be endless is to be divine. Then shall they be gods, because they have no end, because they continue. The prophet insisted emphatically that there could be no proper endowments until a house was built for them. Finish that temple and God will fill it with power. The idea of the temple is a compelling one, not just spiritual, but supremely practical. If people are to come together and act in union, a specific time and place must be stipulated with the proper appointments for the planned activities. A collection of studies, the temple in antiquity, notes that all temples have in common a specific place, cult, and personnel. At all times the temple was, as it was for ancient Israel, the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. It is still the place where all things are gathered in one, appointed by the finger of the Lord, even the place of the temple. The mystique of the temple lies in its extension to other worlds. It is the reflection on earth of the heavenly order, and the power that fills it comes from above. That is why all the sacred measurements of the building have to be so carefully observed. So in modern times, all is according to the pattern given hereafter. How the temple is put into phase with the cosmos itself appears in the dedication— The description of the surveying of the foundation of the great temple at Edfu, still preserved on the walls there, vividly recalls a like event in St. George. Precisely at 12 midnight, President Brigham Young, at whose side stood Presidents John W. Young and Daniel H. Wells, broke ground at the southeast corner, and kneeling on that particular spot, he offered the dedicatory prayer. The southeast corner, Brigham Young explained, because that is where the light comes from. Coordination of time and place by the stars and the compass set the earthly temple into the framework of the cosmos. The word temple itself expresses the idea most clearly. The temple is a multi-purpose structure with but one object, just as the endowment is a series of ordinances, all having the same end. For the Jews, there and there only, you shall bring your sacrifices and there ye shall eat before the Lord your God, and ye shall rejoice in all that ye put your hand to, ye and your households. All great public events and celebrations were centered there. For the Latter-day Saint, it was to be a house of prayer, of fasting, of faith, of learning, of glory, of order. It is a school that all those who shall worship in this house may be taught words of wisdom out of the best books, and that they may seek learning even by study and also by faith. The saints are to prepare for that which is to come, that they may be perfected in the understanding of their ministry, in theory, in principle, and in doctrine. It is a place of refuge in a hostile world, and the center from which the brethren go forth into that world to proclaim thy word, seal up the law, and prepare the hearts of thy saints for all those judgments thou art about to send in thy wrath that thy people may not faint in the day of trouble, that they may gather out and come forth to Zion. Concerning the temple in the last times, and for the fullness of times, I will gather together in one all things, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, and also with all those whom my Father hath given me out of the world. The messengers came in quick succession, Moroni, Elias, John, Elijah, who bring all generations together, the patriarchs who bring the covenants together, and finally Adam, or Michael, who brings all things together as the father of all, the prince of all, the ancient of days. Surprisingly, Peter, James, and John come next as we go back in time, for it was they who brought the gospel to Adam in the first place, by whom I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles, Thus, the endowment, including the offices of Peter, James, and John, is already anticipated in August of the year 1830. The first step in preparing a more gifted people is to set them apart, to get them out of an environment in which everything exercises a downward drag in the relentless manner of gravitation. This world is a very wicked world, said the Prophet Joseph. The world grows more wicked and corrupt, In the earlier ages of the world, a righteous man had a better chance to do good, to be believed, than at the present day. In our world, says the Lord, all flesh is corrupted before me, and the powers of darkness prevail upon the earth. This is no place to realize the blessings of one whose design in making man was to exalt him to be as God. The mystery, power, and glory of the priesthood is so great and glorious that the angels desired to understand it, and cannot. Those who wish to come unto Mount Zion, and into the city of the living God, the heavenly place, the holiest of all, must be strangers and pilgrims on the earth, as all holy men have been. The first order God gave to his people was to remove themselves utterly from the world, to be completely different, holy, set apart, chosen, special, peculiar, not like any other people on the face of the earth. If glory and salvation and honor and immortality and eternal life, kingdoms, principalities, and powers are to be theirs, they must be sanctified, consecrated, all of which means set off or cut off by a fence, an insurmountable wall, an unbridgeable gap. Assemble yourselves together and organize yourselves, sanctify yourselves, Yea, purify your hearts and cleanse your hands and your feet before me, that I may make you clean. The almost fanatical insistence of the Jewish laws on distinction between the clean and the unclean in all things has the purpose of keeping Israel from backsliding into the ways of the world. Nay, the earth itself must be sanctified from all unrighteousness, that it may be prepared for the celestial glory, which was meant to be its permanent and proper condition." Any who are not sanctified must needs inherit another kingdom. When Moses sought diligently to sanctify his people, he first had to lead them into the wilderness, completely apart and by themselves. The Passover was their escape from the flesh pots of Egypt and the corruption of a world that would destroy them. It was to be eaten even with your loins girt, shoes on your feet, staves in your hands, in a hurry. And after it was finished, with not a scrap left behind, The people were to hit the road and never look back. As soon as they were clear of their enemies, Moses was commanded, Go unto the people, and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. In a like circumstance, the Nephites were all to be rebaptized. The exercises of the priesthood cannot begin until the whole operation is removed from ordinary things by making the sharpest possible distinction between two worlds. The elaborate instructions of Leviticus, telling what the people may eat and not eat, where and not where, who is clean and who is not, etc., are no mere priestly officiousness, but the strenuous insistence on the difference between being in the covenant and out. There is no middle ground. Nothing is more important than preserving the sanitary gap between what is holy and what is profane in every aspect of life. The proximity of a world in which we do not belong is a constant threat, and preceding the endowment, Adam receives the garment that is to protect him as he goes forth into the world, not only against it, but against himself, that is, from the temptations and enticements in which he will find himself. It is a strict arrangement, but could one ask less of a race of priests and kings priests and kings who have received fullness and glory after the order of Melchizedek, Enoch, and the Son. The Creation Drama The great epics of literature begin with the poet asking the muse the epic questions, how did it all begin, and what is it all about? The answer here takes us back to the story of the creation, beginning with the council in heaven. Throughout the world, the creation story has been traditionally presented in dramatic form, beginning with the prologue in heaven and the triumphant hymn of the creation. Ever since the indescribable, unimaginable conditions of the zeroth moment, according to a recent study from the Harvard Observatory, the whole life of the universe has been one continual evocation of order from chaos, in which the less organized matter takes the form of ever more organized particles and forces, from chaos to hadrons, to photons, to leptons, to atoms, and on to galaxies, stars, and finally to living organisms and intelligent life. How it all happened is a complete and total mystery. The creation is not the instantaneous and simultaneous appearance of everything ex nihilo, to use Aquinas' expression, nor is it an infinitely long but random series of mindless accidents. It is both a process and a planned and directed operation. The prologue is timeless. In fact, our time was not measured unto man until Adam left the garden and started counting the hours in this dreary world. For the rest, all things are manifest, past, present, and future, and are continually before the Lord. The world is to have its own time for its inhabitants, but that is all. Is not the reckoning of God's time, angels' time, prophets' time, and man's time according to the planet on which they reside? Time has been a great stumbling block in imagining these things, but the important thing is to recognize that the whole drama of the universe is a single epic, yet it is divided, as all great sagas are. For example, the Greek dramas into distinct episodes such as a trilogy of plays, each of them consisting of three acts, each act divided into scenes. Any one of these segments could be presented as a play in itself, yet each one is tied to all the others, and from beginning to end they are all just parts of one story. So we must understand that a creation drama is not the absolute beginning of all things, Rather, we break into the action which has been going on for ages, all as part of the same mighty cycle. Thus, we need not begin the story of the earth in the era of radiation, or with the first atoms or molecules. Neither do we begin with creatures of the primordial ooze. What concerns us is what concerns our parent, Adam. His world begins to take form when the waters which cover the earth are divided, and the dry land appears. The process continues, forming mountains and hills on which the forces of erosion go to work as torrential rains, making great rivers and their tributaries. So, between them, mountain building and erosion are basically responsible for that variety which gives beauty to an otherwise flat and uninteresting terrain. Then comes the breakup of the cloud cover as first the sun and then the moon appear miraculously occupying exactly the same amount of space in the sky as seen from the Earth, a phenomenon which astronomers show to be inconceivable by mere laws of probability. Since our focus is on the story of man, we skip over ages belonging to lower orders of things which have, in fact, according to the latest report, been almost totally exterminated as one general ambiance upon the Earth has given way to another one. We come in on the show just as the great plant revolution takes place when the angiosperms appear on the earth with revolutionary suddenness, a violent explosion of new life as grass, flowers, shrubs, and trees appear in that order. This new type of plant life, appearing so suddenly, made it possible for new types of animals to appear, beginning with the elephant and followed by the great grazing and browsing herds feeding upon the new cereals. These, in turn, gave rise to a thriving population of great carnivores, which preyed upon and depended upon the herds for their existence. Today we are told that a layer of iridium deposited around the world, perhaps by meteors, marks the abrupt extinction of almost every life form at the end of the age of dinosaurs and the equally sudden appearance of totally new life forms in the tertiary, which is actually labeled the New World, in which man last appears. It would seem that man at first was something of a primitive, like a small child, living happily with the animals in a timeless world, which only receives passing notice, since his real career does not begin until he marries into the covenant. Having been properly wed to Eve, with her he takes the great step forward by accepting God's law, after which they enter another world, the Garden of Eden." Most Glorious and Beautiful. At a very early time, mountains, hills, rivers, and streams were expressly intended to provide variety and beauty to the scene. When the earth was finally in a proper state to receive man, the makers agreed that it was good and beautiful. It was meant to remain so. When Adam entered the garden, it was like receiving a marvelous Christmas or birthday present. An earth provided with all sorts of vegetable and animal life, everything that Adam could possibly need in it. He was invited to enjoy an unlimited variety of exquisite fruits, to have a good time dressing the garden and taking good care of it. He was to be happy, and along with him, all the other creatures as well. And I, God, blessed them, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. Adam now knowing what the Lord's purpose is toward all his creatures, is put in charge of the whole project, have dominion over every living thing that moveth upon the face of the earth. This is seen throughout the ancient literature to be a charge of grave responsibility for Adam, to supervise the increase and prosperity of all creatures, though many Latter-day Saints have treated it as a license to exterminate. When the time comes to restore that blessed state of the earth, which the gospel anticipates, then Zion must increase in beauty and in holiness. Zion must arise and put on her beautiful garments. The commandment to have joy in the garden was carried over into the world that followed. For when Adam grasped the situation, he said, Blessed be the name of God, for because of my transgression my eyes are opened, and in this life I shall have joy." And Eve, his wife, heard all these things and was glad. Likewise, when the Israelites were driven out of the lush valley of the Nile, which was like the garden of the Lord, into the dry hill country, as Adam was from the garden, God reassured them that it would still be a beautiful world if they would listen to him. I will give you the rain in his due season, and I will send grass, that is, as long as you take heed to yourselves." They are to have joy and revel in the two great commandments upon which hang all the law and the prophets, since, if they are fully observed, none of the other commandments are necessary. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him with all thy heart and with all thy soul? The second commandment is likened to it. Since God loves all his creatures, You must do the same. You must love the stranger, the widow, and the orphan, because He loves them. You must be concerned for them, because He is concerned for them. Whether in Eden or out of it, everything He has given you is His. Therefore, you should give it to all in the same spirit He does, imparting freely of your substance in joy and happiness. Abiding by the commandment should fill us with the love of giving. Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. So the first commandment given is, Thou shalt love with all thine heart, soul, and might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Failing which, nothing but destruction awaits Israel, because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness, and with gladness of heart, or the abundance of all things. When the prophet Joseph feels to exult, he breaks into a hymn on the beauties of the natural world. How was he brought to the sacred grove for the opening of this dispensation? I looked upon the sun, the glorious luminary of the earth, and also the moon rolling in their majesty through the heavens, and also the stars shining in their courses, and the earth also upon which I stood, and the beast of the field, and the fowls of heaven, and the fish of the waters, and also man walking forth upon the face of the earth, in majesty and in the strength of beauty, whose power and intelligence in governing the things are so exceeding great and marvelous even in the likeness of him who created them. What set him to thinking was, by contrast, the world of early nineteenth-century rural America, the world that man had made, which to us seems like an age of innocence. I pondered many things in my heart concerning the situation of the world of mankind, the contentions and divisions, the wickedness and abominations, and the darkness which pervaded the minds of mankind. At the sight of this tragic discrepancy, he reports, my mind became exceedingly distressed. It raised one of the terrible questions. Therefore I cried unto the Lord for mercy, for there was none else to whom I could go. From his happy situation, Adam was cast out into the world. Sacrifice became the order of the day. Adam built an altar and sacrificed. The very essence of the temple in Israel was sacrifice. Every major ordinance performed there was accompanied with sacrifice, and the altar was the center of every sacred activity. This is recounted in Moses chapter 5, verses 5 through 7 where we find Adam offering sacrifice in obedience to God's command, that they should worship the Lord their God. He explained to the angel that his only reason for making the sacrifice was to obey the Lord's command, and then it was explained to him that this was a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten, whose sacrifice had redeemed him on condition that he repent and call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. Repentance and sacrifice are the plan of life while we are on this earth. The sacrifice required of Abraham in the offering up of Isaac shows that if a man would attain to the keys of the kingdom of an endless life, he must sacrifice all things. The Israelites were aware of this. As Jehovah thy God has redeemed thee, therefore I command thee this thing today. The first thing Moses taught the Israelites when they were alone in the desert was that each one must give something up, a free will offering, every individual as his heart moves him. The free will offering is absolutely required, it cannot be evaded. What makes it free is that the individual, though he must make the sacrifice, may decide for himself how much he will give. For the purpose of the sacrifice, is to test him as it did Abraham. The Gospel Law The Gospel was given to Adam and Eve when, after many days of sacrificing, an angel of the Lord appeared unto Adam and taught him the plan of salvation. Adam and Eve joyfully embraced it and taught it to their children. But Satan came among them, saying, Believe it not, and men began from that time forth to be carnal, sensual, and devilish. The gospel entails a definite pattern or style of life best defined as the opposite of carnal, sensual, and devilish. One of the charges or responsibilities connected with adherence to the gospel is reiterated in the olive leaf revelation. Organize yourselves. Establish a house, even a house of prayer. Therefore, cease from all your light speeches, From all laughter, from all your lustful desires, from all your pride and light mindedness, and from all your wicked doings. As to light mindedness, humor is not light minded, it is insight into human foibles. There is nothing light minded about the incisive use of satire, often delivered with an undertone of sorrow, for the foolishness of men and the absurdity of their pretenses. Such was the cutting humor of Abinadi addressing the priests of King Noah. There was nothing light minded about it, though it might raise a chuckle. What is light minded is kitsch, delight in shallow trivia, and the viewing of serious or tragic events with complacency or indifference. It is light minded, as Brigham Young often observed, to take seriously and devote one's interest to modes, styles, Fads and manners of speech and deportment that are passing and trivial, without solid worth or intellectual appeal. There are times when nonsense is not light-minded but insightful. Horace is the classic example. His good-natured and funny satire is a sad exposure of the evils and corruption of his times, so disturbingly like our own. As to laughter, Joseph Smith had a hearty laugh that shook his whole frame, but it was a meaningful laugh, a good-humored laugh. Loud laughter is the hollow laugh, the bray, the meaningless laugh of the soundtrack or the audience responding to prompting cards or routinely laughing at every remark made, no matter how banal, in a situation comedy. Note that idle thoughts and excess of laughter go together in Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 69. As to light speech and speaking evil, my policy is to criticize only when asked to. Nothing can be gained otherwise. But politicians are fair game. The prophet Nathan soundly denounced David, though he was the Lord's anointed. But it was for his private and military hanky-panky, thinking only of his own appetites and interests. Since nearly all gossip is outside the constructive frame, it qualifies as speaking evil. As to lustful desires and unholy practices, such need no definition, one would think. Yet, historically, the issue is a real one that arises from aberrations and perversions of the endowment among various hermetic societies which, professing higher knowledge from above, resort to witchcraft, necromancy, and divination with a strong leaning toward sexual license as sanctioned and ever required by their distorted mysteries. It is surprising to find such goings-on even in sober communities such as the Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay Colonies, and in the lives of some of the greatest figures of the Renaissance and Reformation. It was part of the mystique to be riotously oversexed, and Joseph Smith has been so accused without a shadow of justification. The scriptural injunction to secrecy follows from the stringent necessity of keeping a discreet distance from the world pearls before swine, is not an expression of contempt, but a commentary on the uselessness of giving things to people who place no value on them, have no use for them, and could only spoil them. The guarding of their secrets got the early Christians into a great deal of trouble. But if there is one thing all the mysteries have in common, it is the insistence on secrecy. In many cases, The only capital some secret societies have is the capacity to mystify and excite curiosity in others, the classic instance being the Shrine of the Bottle in Rabelais' Pantagruel. But for us, there is no appeal whatever in secrecy as such. Sacred things, if freely discussed in public, would invariably be distorted, vulgarized, misinterpreted beyond recognition, and so lost. Remember, that which cometh from above is sacred, and must be spoken with care, and by constraint of the Spirit, without which Spirit it is a great condemnation. Why should not these things become the subject of frank discussion among the saints? Because that would make them a subject of contention, and one of the first words of the Lord to the Nephites was that there should be no contention among the people. Historically, religious issues becoming the subject of contention have brought endless misery and suffering. Long, horrendous wars have been fought over the issues of ordinances, baptism, chrism, sacraments, consecration, tonsure, vestments, over doctrines of salvation, atonement, original sin, and so forth, and over the dates of sacred observances. This concludes the program on this side of the cassette. To continue the program, please turn the cassette over. THE RITUAL ENACTMENT OF CURSES The ritual performance of a curse was anciently an imitation sacrifice. The priest shed his own blood either for the king, whom he originally represented, or for the people, whom the king also represented. But as he can represent them by proxy, so he too may shed his blood by proxy, by the sacrificial beast. All of this, of course, is a similitude of the sacrifice of the Only Begotten, which atoned for the sins of all, and thus redeems or saves from death. In the Old Covenant, when the leper is declared clean and his life restored, two birds are taken, one is killed, and the other is drenched with its blood, and then allowed to fly away free, taking the leper's sins with it, while the patient is sprinkled with the same blood. Being thus delivered from death, he washes his clothes, shaves his hair, and bathes. Then he brings two lambs, one for trespass, the price of sin. Its blood is placed upon the right ear of the one to be cleansed, and upon the thumb of his right hand. Then the priest takes the oil held in his left hand, and after sprinkling it, puts it on the right ear and right thumb of the healed person, where the blood had been, pouring the rest of the oil on his head it is the oil of healing. This is a private version of the public rite in which Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the head of a ram, transferring their guilt to it, slay it, and then put the blood on their own thumbs and ears. The ram is burnt for a sin offering as an atonement. It is clear when one thinks back to the ram that was sacrificed in the place of Isaac, Abraham's offering of his only son that this all looks forward to the great atoning sacrifice, the whole idea being to celebrate our redemption from death. We are told that a covenant must be made by the shedding of one's own blood unless a substitute can be found to redeem one. In ancient times, all the sacrifices were symbolic, and Maimonides says that in the entire history of Israel, only nine heifers were really sacrificed. Certainly one of the striking things about the newly discovered temple scroll is the avoidance of bloody sacrifice, which takes place only at a discrete distance from the temple. The ear has a significance in ancient Israel when a servant in Israel, out of pure love, wished to be sealed to a master for the rest of his life, even though free to go his own way his bond was made sure by fixing his ear to the door with a nail driven through it. It was a relatively painless operation, since there are only three nerves in the lobe of the ear. But it would be hard to find a more convincing symbol of anything fixed in a sure place. One penalty is particularly interesting because of a very early Christian writing known as the Discourse on Abaton, which goes back to apostolic times in Jerusalem. It was discovered in a chest preserved from the earliest days of the church in the house of John Mark's mother. Timothy, the bishop of Alexandria, while attending a conference at Jerusalem, persuaded the aged keeper of the old church archives to show him the book. It tells how, when the council was held at the foundation of the world, and Adam was chosen to preside over the project, Satan refused to recognize him, saying, It is meet that this man Adam should come and worship me, for I existed before he came into being. And when my father, it is the Lord speaking to the apostles, saw his great pride, and that his wickedness and evil doing had reached a fullness, he commanded the armies of heaven, saying, Remove the token, mark, document, or authorization, which is in his right hand. Remove his protective armor, and cast him down to earth, For his time has come. With him go all his followers, for he is the head over them, and their names are written in his hand. The angels were reluctant to demote so great a one, and they did not wish to remove the writing from his hand. And my Father commanded them to bring a sharp sickle, and cut him at breast level from shoulder to shoulder, on this side and on that, right through his body to the vertebra of his shoulders. This cost him a third of his strength, and rendered him forever incapable of prevailing by force. Henceforth, he gains his ends by deception and trickery, which makes him all the more dangerous. Names, Signs, and Seals A token, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is something given as the symbol and evidence of a right or privilege, upon the presentation of which the right or privilege may be exercised. To be more specific, a sign was both a pointing and a touching. In particular, it was the dexter, the right hand or taking hand, and as such is universal in the dexiosis of the mysteries. For the Manichaeans, the right hand was used for bidding farewell to our heavenly parents upon leaving our primeval home, And the greeting with which we shall be received when we return to it. Tokens were used extensively in regulating ancient social and religious gatherings. They are all means of identification, whose main purpose is security. The free interchange of terms, each denoting items that may be themselves interchanged, is apparent in the law of Moses And thou shalt shew thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. And it shall be for a token upon thine hand, and for frontlets between thine eyes. For by strength of hand the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt." As one approaches the camp of Israel, carefully guarded in a dangerous environment, one first gives a sign to be seen from afar. Then being recognized, one approaches and at closer range gives his name. This establishes closer identity. Every name is an epithet indicating exactly in the manner of a token above a distinguishing mark, indication, or characteristic trait which distinguishes one from all other members of the society. To receive a new name is to receive a new role or persona, to be identified with a particular situation or association, as is indicated by surname, family name, or nickname, each placing one in a particular relationship to society. Of great importance in the earliest tradition of the human race is the secret name by which the hero is known only to his parents. When the femme fatal wheedles the secret of this name from him, terrible things ensue. After the sign and the name comes the closest approach, an actual handclasp or embrace. The word seal, which is so important, is simply the diminutive of sign, It is a word rendered peculiar in Deuteronomy. Like the other tokens, it can represent the individual who bears the king's seal, who bears the authority. Its particular value, however, is as a time binder. The seal secures the right of a person to the possession of something from which he or she may be separated by space and time. It guarantees that he shall not be deprived of his claim on an object by long or distant separation. The mark on the seal is the same as that which he carries with him. And when the two are compared, his claim is established, but only if neither of the tokens has been altered. This is the control anciently exercised by tally sticks, such as the stick of Joseph and the stick of Judah. Let us recall again that a servant was forever bound to his master in love and devotion by his own free will when his ear was nailed to a doorpost signifying that he would never walk out on his lord. He was now bound by a sure sign. The nail, as a sure fixing of contracts, is one of the most ancient of symbols. At the center of the Germanic world was the shrine of the Irminsul, the central column or tent pole around which the universe revolved. Into this, at a great gathering of the new year, the year-nail was driven to secure the order of the cosmos for another age. The Irminsul identifies Veltnagel with the cosmic tent pole of the tabernacle, the center stake that holds all in place with the aid of the stakes driven like nails around it. The earliest temples of Mesopotamia have huge clay nails placed into their walls to ensure stability both architecturally and symbolically. In Egyptian, the archaic nail symbol stands for Sirius and the Sothic cycle as well as Sopdu turning point of the cosmic cycle, the moment of the revival of life in the universe. In the royal tent or temple or tabernacle of the camp of Israel, the central pole of the tent was commonly identified with the pole of the heavens, and the tent itself with the Veltenmantel, or expanse of the firmament. What kept the central stake or pole of Zion in place were the pegs, stakes, or nails driven around it to hold the ropes firmly in place. The Law of Consecration One important covenant that will someday govern life on earth is the law of consecration. No covenant was ever given more easy to understand, said Brigham Young, so when the saints ignore it, they do it consciously. Yet it is this law to which the related steps, the law of God, the law of sacrifice, and the law of the gospel, are meant to lead us. Reluctance to fulfill this promise, the hardest of all to observe, was foreseen from the first. If you will that I give unto you a place in the celestial world, you must prepare yourselves by doing the things which I have commanded you and required of you and that for the purpose and intent that you may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things, yea, and earthly things also, for the obtaining of heavenly things. For if ye are not equal in earthly things, ye cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. The extreme importance of this law must be stressed, the more so since it is not well received. And let every man deal honestly, and be alike among this people, and receive alike, that ye may be one." even as I have commanded you. In return for this, the Lord guarantees the prosperity of the land in ancient as in modern times. And the command is to organize my kingdom upon the consecrated land. The land itself is consecrated for an everlasting order for the benefit of my church and for the salvation of men until I come. The law will be an economic arrangement to tide us through. In your temporal things you shall be equal. It will be a perfectly safe undertaking, since it will have the Lord's guarantee that those who will be observing it should be blessed with a multiplicity of blessings, even as in ancient Israel. One day we will be required to live the law. It is contrary to the will and commandment of God that those who receive not their inheritance by consecration should have their names enrolled with the people of God. According to the prophet Joseph, When we consecrate our property to the Lord, it is to administer to the wants of the poor and needy, for this is the law of God. The basic principles set forth are, first, insistence on absolute equality, and, second, the importance of receiving it by covenant, not as a suggestion or proposition, but as a binding contract that cannot be broken. As in Israel, when a tribute of a free will offering was required of every man, as he is able, it was in recognition of blessings received. The spirit of the thing is all important. In doing this, you and every single member of the community, including strangers, must join together and be happy as one big happy family. Remembering Abraham, all are to rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee. And unto thine house, and to the Levite, and the stranger that is among you, that the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow may eat within thy gates and be filled. At that time you will say, I have brought away the things of my house which have been sanctified, consecrated, and also have given them to the Levite, stranger, fatherless, widow, according to all thy commandments. All must share and share equally. And if they do this, not grudgingly, but with all your heart and soul, as you have promised and covenanted this day, you will be his peculiar or sealed people. Set apart the wonder of other nations, that you may be a holy people, as he has said. To preserve the spirit and letter of consecration at all times, no Israelite might charge interest on a loan, And all were bound by the Lord's release to cancel all debts every seven years. And don't worry about losing your capital, because God will guarantee it. For the Lord shall greatly bless thee if you do it. The saints were bound together by a bond and covenant that cannot be broken by transgression. And it shall be done according to the laws of the Lord. It is for your good, whatever you may think about it. The basic rule will be that you are to be equal to have equal claims on the properties, every man according to his wants and his needs, inasmuch as his wants are just. No one can deny the tenor and meaning of Doctrine and Covenants, Section 38. The poor have complained before me, I am no respecter of persons, and I have made the earth rich, and deign to give unto you greater riches, even a land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey." Wherefore, hear my voice, and follow me, and you shall be a free people, and ye shall have no laws but my laws, and let every man esteem his brother as himself. I say unto you, Be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. Doctrine and Covenants, section 42, verses 31 and 32, is even stronger than this. Following the great endowment bestowed by Christ himself on the Nephites, The people enjoyed almost four generations of life on earth as it was meant to be, and they had all things common among them. Therefore there were not rich and poor, bond and free, but they were all made free and partakers of the heavenly gift. So it was with the saints in the days of the apostles who had been instructed to ask God outright, Give us this day our daily bread, and rejoiced in having all things common." Equality and humility are what the law of consecration requires and what it begets. In order to receive the endowment, said the prophet in 1835, the brethren should prepare their hearts in all humility for an endowment with power from on high. Indeed, what later held up the giving of the endowment concerning the twelve was that they are under condemnation because they have not been sufficiently humble in my sight and in consequence of their covetous desires in that they have not dealt equally with each other in the division of the monies which came into their hands. It had been a grievous sin that they should consider themselves unequal, and they were told that there would be no endowment for those who make invidious comparison or watch for iniquity. Jewish authorities contemplating today the return of a temple to Jerusalem are particularly worried that the old elitism of the priesthood will cause mischief and jealousy. But under the present order, there is no rank whatever in the temple. Under the Levitical order, Joseph Smith explained, only the high priest can enter the veil. But through the Melchizedek order, all men who prove worthy may be admitted into the presence of the Lord. The difference is an enormous one. It is the magnanimous principle behind our work for the dead. In my Father's kingdom are many kingdoms, in order that ye may be heirs of God and joint heirs with me. I do not believe the Methodist doctrine of sending honest men and noble-minded men to hell, but I have an order of things to save the poor fellows at any rate, and get them saved, for I will send men to preach to them in prison, and save them if I can." It is all in the spirit of God's own work. His infinite work and glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, to share everything he can with others. For I, the Lord, am not to be mocked in these things. The children of Israel were told that if they kept the law of consecration, they would be a sign and a wonder to the nations. But if they did not keep it, they would be another kind of sign and wonder. They shall be upon thee for a sign and for a wonder, and upon thy seed for ever, because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart, for the abundance of all things. Never forget, they are warned, that all they have comes from one source. They are never to get the idea that they have earned it, lest when thou hast eaten and art full, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. And no one is to think, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land, not for thy righteousness. When the Nephites fell from grace, they kept right on building and adorning their churches and prospering greatly. And from that time forth they did have their goods and their substance no more common among them. Though one may prosper under other schools of economy, That is not the way the Lord wants it, and the Nephites were preparing themselves for the wars of extinction that lay ahead. One may refuse to accept the law of consecration without offense, but having once accepted it, one must follow its principles or fall under the condemnation of God. Inasmuch as some of my servants have not kept the commandment but have broken the covenant, I have cursed them with a very sore and grievous curse. Their acceptance of the covenant was only with feigned words while they followed the way of covetousness. It is vain to rationalize and make special cases, for none are exempt from this law who belong to the Church. Much economic sophistry has gone into evading the terms of this agreement, and it was on this point that the prophet said, Those who limit the designs of God as concerted by the grand council of heaven cannot obtain the knowledge of God, And I do not know, but I may say they will drink in the damnation of their souls. Satan concentrates his efforts on this particular objective, using covetousness as his infallible weapon. Sex runs a very poor second in the race with greed when it comes to corrupting the hearts of men and turning them away from God, as we learn in the Enoch literature. When the saints were told to prepare and organize themselves by a bond or everlasting covenant that cannot be broken, they were also told that otherwise Satan seeketh to turn their hearts away from the truth, that they become blinded and understand not the things which are prepared for them. And when the brethren engaged in what they considered shrewd financial practices, the Lord spoke, Let them repent of all their sins and of all their covetous desires, For what is property unto me, saith the Lord? As to the properties in Kirtland, let them go. Have I not made the earth? Do I not hold the destinies of all the armies of the nations of the earth? Therefore will I not make solitary places to bring forth in abundance? Is there not room enough on the mountains or the land where Adam dwelt that you should covet that which is but the drop? The Lord ends this admonition with a stinging rebuke. Let them be ashamed of all their secret abominations and of all their littleness of soul before me." Prayer is designed to bring about a perfect union of minds and concentration of intelligence on a single object. In the direst straits, the saints are told they can overcome if they remain steadfast in their minds in solemnity and in the spirit of prayer. This steadfastness requires that intense concentration and unity of thought on which the Egyptians placed such store in their temples. Indeed, they felt that the continued existence of the universe itself somehow depended on unflagging mental effort on the part of those whose awareness made it a reality. Everyone is aware that the power of thought is important on solemn occasions, but it is also demanding and exhausting And most of the cults have traditionally taken an easier way, urging the mind to go all out by mind-altering drugs, by peyote, mushrooms, opium, marijuana, etc., by tantric spells, yoga, drums, incense, dancing, chanting to the heavy beat, and by even more dignified procedures like pageantry, lights, vestments, temple bells, incense, litanies, spectacles, and pomp and circumstance. These have, as John Chrysostom pointed out long ago, a definite narcotic effect, no matter how mild. He warns against even statuary and paintings in the churches as, at best, distractions. Edward Lytton's once-famous novel, Zanoni, gives a vivid picture of the extremes to which such shenanigans can be carried. He is writing particularly of the Masons. But the spirit of the gospel is intelligence— And nothing is more important than the preservation of perfect sobriety throughout, so that any manifestations that should occur may not be attributed to tricks or narcotics. There have been many manifestations in the temples, but one does not expect them as the order of the day. Heavenly visitors have always been few and far between, for the purpose of our being here is to test us when we are left on our own. The founders of the dispensations have a virtual monopoly on the major visitations, and that is as it should be. One comet in a hundred years is quite adequate to prove beyond a doubt that comets really exist. It is not necessary to repeat their visitations every month. So the prophet can tell the people, I testify that no man has power to reveal it but myself, things in heaven, in earth, and in hell and all shut their mouths for the future. Do we need more? Yes, the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is available to everyone on demand. The Sanctity of Sacred Things To reveal sacred things is to hold their true value in contempt, to despise and throw away the endowment, the only plan ever offered mankind for eternal happiness. There is a superior intelligence bestowed upon such as obey the gospel, which, if sinned against, the apostate is left naked and destitute of the Spirit of God, and he is, in truth, nigh unto cursing. They who turn away from the covenants become as much darkened as they were previously enlightened, and then, no marvel, if all their power should be enlisted against the truth. He that will not receive the greater light must have taken away from him all the light which he hath. And if the light which is in you become darkness, behold, how great is that darkness! This was exactly the situation of the infamous watchers in the time of Enoch. When the works of darkness began to prevail among all the sons of men, a sort of crash program was undertaken to stem the tide of apostasy as the gospel began to be preached by holy angels sent forth from the presence of God, as well as earthly ministers. According to the very ancient, firmly established, and widely documented tradition, some of those angels who came down to call men to repentance as watchers to oversee and report conditions on earth allowed themselves to be seduced by the daughters of men, forgot their calling, and fell from grace. Their unspeakable sin was to use the sacred in an unhallowed connection, even as Cain did, claiming that since they had all the ordinances, their activities were authorized of heaven. A general principle is stated in the Zohar, and with equal clarity by Joseph Smith, that whenever the Holy One allowed the deep mysteries of wisdom to be brought down into the world, mankind were corrupted by them and attempted to declare war on God. Thus the watchers used the great knowledge entrusted to them to establish an order of things on earth in direct contradiction of what was intended by God. There will be false priesthoods in the days of Seth, Adam prophesied, and God will be angry with their attempts to surpass his power. The angels and all the race of men will use his name falsely for deception. Woe unto you who pervert the eternal covenant— and reckon yourselves sinless, was said of them. Their ruin is accomplished because they have learnt all the secrets of the angels. They have received the ordinances, but have removed themselves from the way of life. In the days of my fathers, says Enoch, they transgressed from the covenant of heaven, sinned and betrayed the law of the gospel. They also married and bore children, not according to the spiritual order, but by the carnal order only." Woe unto you who lead many astray by your lies, who twist the true accounts and rest the eternal covenant, and rationalize that you are without sin. The punishment of the watchers, like that of Cain, was to be rejected by both heaven and earth, and there are many accounts of how their great leaders remained suspended, hanging between heaven and earth, in the Book of Mormon fashion, until the Day of Judgment. The endowment is either the real thing or it is nothing, and if it is real, or if I accept the probability that it is, I cannot compromise in the least degree. Eternal life is an all-or-nothing proposition. One does not arrange to enjoy a brief stay in eternity or to bask in the transient glory of a special-effect's heaven. It has been a subject of wonder to students of ancient religion how well the secrets of the old mysteries were kept, though they were the heart of the religious experience and dominated thought and action, and though every important person in late antiquity was initiated into the mysteries, yet to this day the literature has given no certain account of what went on. There is constant reference to them in the drama, both tragic and comic, and in poetry, and especially in Plato but it is always discreetly veiled. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In the celebrated cases when the doings of the mysteries were exposed in tipsy or playful carouse, as in the case of Alcibiades, the outcome was disastrous and the guilty parties discredited for life. Actually, in revealing sacred things, one gives away nothing but one's own integrity, though that is everything. It is significant that none of the frightful disclosures of the temple ordinances made in the sensational literature of the nineteenth century had the expected impact. They all fizzled, as indeed they must, since to one who does not understand their significance these sacred things have no interest at all. In those cases where secrecy and mystification are almost the whole stock and trade of a secret society or lodge, it is understandable that much should be made of it. In the old kingdom of Egypt, during a revolution, the king's secret, which gave him his authority and power, was exposed to common view, whereupon the kingdom collapsed. For it turned out that the awesome king's secret was that there was no secret, it had been lost. The Veil of the Temple Throughout the ancient world, the veil of the temple is the barrier between ourselves and both the hidden mysteries of the temple and the boundless expanses of cosmic space beyond. An example of the former is the veil of Isis, which no man has lifted, and of the latter is the veil that hangs across the back of the last chamber in the Egyptian temple, beyond which lie eternity and the worlds beyond. The Jewish literature often mentions the veils between the worlds, And the book of Moses clearly recalls the tradition of the book of Enoch. Millions of earths like this would not be a beginning to the number of thy creations, and thy curtains are stretched out still. In the ancient temples, the partition is a veil rather than a wall to show that it is not absolutely impenetrable and that messengers can pass through it, that dim sights and distant sounds might be detected, that we are not wholly cut off from our heavenly home unless we choose to be. The idea is set forth in a passage well known to Latter-day Saints. The veil was taken from our minds, and the eyes of our understanding were open, and this while standing before the real veil. It is the place of signum et responsum to establish the identity and bona fides of one who wishes to pass. We find it in the oldest Egyptian and Babylonian texts, And it plays an important part in the Egyptian funerary literature, and especially in facsimile, two to the book of Abraham. In the Shabako text, the oldest of all religious writings, the hero in the first step of his progress passes through the veil after answering the questions and goes on to be received into the arms of his father and mount his throne. Early in this century, Sir Aurel Stein discovered some graves in a seventh-century cemetery. In one of the tomb chambers, two veils were found, one still hanging suspended from wooden pegs. They were near life-size and showed the king and queen in a formal embrace at the veil, the king holding up the square on the right side and the queen holding the compass on the left. Located at the navel was the sun as the center of the system from which twelve spokes extended to the white dots in the circle, indicating the twelve-month course of the year, or the life cycle. At the side of the two intertwined figures appears the Big Dipper. It was at once recognized that the scene represents the sacred marriage of the king and queen at the new year, celebrating the new age and inaugurating the new life cycle with the drama of creation. The compass and square are viewed as the instruments marking out both the pattern of the universe and the foundations of the earth. The Archaic Order One can easily detect familiar echoes of the endowment in religious institutions and practices throughout the world. The phenomenon is readily explained by Joseph Smith, and students of comparative religion have now come around to the same conclusion, namely, that the real endowment has been on earth from time to time and has also been spread abroad in corrupted forms so that fragments from all parts of the world can be traced back to common beginnings. It is reasonable to suppose, wrote Joseph Smith, that man departed from the first teachings or instructions which he received from heaven in the first age and refused by his disobedience to be governed by them. But man was not able himself to erect a system or plan with power sufficient to free him from a destruction which awaited him. Hence it was necessary to put him on the track again, as from time to time these glad tidings were sounded in the ears of men in different ages of the world. Certainly God spoke to Abel, and if he did, would he not deliver to him the whole plan of the gospel? And if Abel was taught of the coming of the Son of God, was he not taught also of his ordinances? The cosmic connection is never missing from this archaic knowledge, as is well known today. And the prophet wrote, For our own part, we cannot believe that the ancients in all ages were so ignorant of the system of heaven as many suppose. He then went on to show how Abraham, too, had the endowment. For the prophet Joseph, the patriarchal priesthood was this holy order of parents and children back to Adam. The endowment you are so anxious about you cannot comprehend now, nor could Gabriel explain it to the understanding of your dark minds. Because of the inevitable tendency of men to stray as the sparks fly upward, the tradition has been contaminated. Thus, according to Joseph Smith, Freemasonry, as at present, is the apostate endowments, as sectarian religion is the apostate religion. Some surviving institutions, including the old Catholic Church, are deserving of respect, though without authority. Brother Joseph says masonry was taken from the priesthood, but has become degenerated, but many things are perfect. In view of all this, it is instructive to view particular cases in which the most impressive survivals of the old endowment shine through clearly. Usually, it is those things which appear to conventional religion and scholarship incongruous, meaningless, or absurd. The Old Testament itself is full of such things.